1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, Theory. Hi.
1: Welcome to High Theory.
0: In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory.
1: I'm Sharonik Boshu.
0: And I'm Kim Adams.
1: We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself.
0: Today, I'm speaking with Dennis Duncan about the index. So Dennis, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Dennis Duncan. I am Associate Professor at University College London, and yeah, and I wrote a book called Index, A History of The.
0: Cool. It's a great title. And so let me ask you our first question. What the heck is an index? Well, that's,
1: that's a really good question. At its simplest, an index is a table with two columns. One column has the thing that you're looking for, and the other column has where you can find it. So it's a way of navigating big data In order to look up something that you do know in an order that you do know, usually alphabetical order, and then it will point you to the mass of otherwise unnavigable data to tell you where you can find it. Of course, we know indexes at the back of books, but yeah, I think the thing that I get asked a lot when I say I wrote a book on the history of indexes is, well, that's that's pretty niche, isn't it? And I think one has to remind people, well, you know, when was the last time you looked something up, looked something up on your phone? up on the internet mm-hmm. that's all indexes google have a web page called what is search and it says oh, and google does two things it does crawling and indexing crawling is the thing that we associate with google where you know it has these sort of web spiders that go and click and follow every link up but what they find they then just put into tables which are indexes so when you type something into a search engine you're not searching the web you're searching the index the web cool i also think i mean the, the internet's quite a good a parallel for what indexes do the idea of the hyperlinks you will click here and it will jump you to another place this is what indexes is different from tables of contents a table of contents that you find at the front of a book essentially mirrors the architecture of the book it tells you what you will find and the order in which you will find it it's not a random access thing it's kind of like this is yeah you know, structured the same way as the argument of the book, whereas an index is like a pile of hyperlinks. You can jump crazily through a book by using an index. The the index sort of puts things into an arbitrary order based on terms that the index has chosen and the alphabetical order of those terms. And it's kind of like hyperlinks, just bang, bang, bang. You You can jump around something rather than proceeding in a structured way through it.
0: Yeah, no, it's really hard to imagine the table of contents for the Internet, yeah. but a lot easier to imagine the index. Oh, sounds like a kind of Goldsmith
1: project, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, totally. So you compare the index to the table of contents. The other thing that makes you sort of jump around when you're reading a book is the notes, right? So how's the index different from the notes? Oh, well, that that's a good question.
1: I suppose that all of these different paratexts just have their own histories. The index is different from the notes. In It's a different thing. The index is different from the table of contents because the table of contents stretches back to antiquity. We have tables of contents before the book. Interesting. So you have somebody like Pliny writing in the first century talking about, I've attached a table of contents to my massively long book as a time saver so you don't have to read everything. Now, indexes don't work with scrolls. When books are still scrolls, Mm -hmm. an index is no use because it has this jumpy dynamic it'll fire you off here fire you off there but if your book is 12 scrolls and you have to unroll them it's just not worth the effort so an index has a different history indexes are only about 800 years old tables of contents are a couple of thousand years old the difference is partly to do with the physical format of the book Footnotes that's really evolved from marginal annotations if you see a medieval manuscript sometimes when they quote somebody in the margin it will say ezekiel chapter 12 or something like that but yeah all these different paratexts have completely different histories essentially because they're doing different things they work with different formats of the book you know a hyperlink only makes sense in the kindle era
0: yeah totally okay so the paratext is dependent on the physical structure of the text that's mm. uh, cool just to jump in yeah
1: talking about arbitrariness the index is based on arbitrariness the table of contents isn't table of contents is structured around the architecture of the text that it's representing an index has arbitrariness coded into putting things into alphabetical order it also has arbitrariness coded into its locators usually we use for a book index we use page numbers now a page number has got absolutely nothing to do with the text you could Print your text in a very big book, in which case there aren't very many pages, or you can print it in a very small format book, in which case the page numbers are going to stretch a lot further. So we have a kind of double-tiered arbitrariness in the index. I really like it. It's it's a really sort of fascinating jump, intellectual leap to say actually, instead of thinking everything has to be related to the text that we're we're discussing here, why don't we introduce an arbitrariness in in the left-hand column of the table in the form of of alphabetical order? And then why don't we introduce arbitrariness in the right-hand column of the table because the whole thing is just being keyed to not the text, but the book.
0: It's two systems of order that have absolutely nothing to do with the contents
1: of the text. (laughs) Text independent, platform dependent, It's about the codex rather than the text. It's genius. It's such a brainy idea. It was slightly frowned upon in the 13th century. It was a big leap to say, well, God has breathed his eternal order into the universe, but we don't care about that. Tell me how you spell it. That's a great, brave leap into the darkness to say, I'm going to order my book around the words rather than around the ideas.
0: Well, so on the subject of that, Brave leap. Let me ask you our second question. How do I use an index? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> um, you run your finger
1: down the corner. No, t- the first thing you need to know is what you want to find out. Okay. So in this case, it's sort of different from the table of contents. The index works as long as you know what it is that you're looking for. Then it's great because if you know what you're looking for and you know how to sing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then you can run your finger down one column of the table until you find the thing that you're looking for, and then Mm -hmm. follow your finger across and it will tell you where to find it. It might have come from the idea of the library catalogue in the Library of Alexandria.
0: Mm.
1: I'm looking for Xenophon, but the library's got half a million scrolls in it. Where can I find it? Well, Mm. the original big data problem is how to organise the scrolls in the Library of Alexandria. But Yes, again, the, the incredible leap is to say, well, you know what everybody does know? Anyone who can read knows the order of the letters of the alphabet. So let's take that universal knowledge. Yeah, so how do you use an index? First, go and learn the alphabet. Yeah. Secondly, know what it is that you're looking for. And thirdly, then you're away. I say it as if it's intuitive. What we find in medieval manuscripts that have indexes is most of the indexes have a how-to paragraph. I mean, it seems so intuitive to us. For several hundred years, almost every index would say, first, imagine pages had numbers. Now, to your enormous surprise, look at the top right of this page. See, there's a number. Now... (laughs) Now, imagine you know what you're looking for. You're looking for Alexander destroyed the city of Tyre. Well, run your finger down to A. So really, it is spelling out because I suppose nothing's really intuitive. And for early users, they really did have this kind of manual at the top of every index.
0: Yeah, I thought the problem for a medieval reader would be the spelling because like spellings aren't standardized until much later. But in fact, the idea of a page number is yeah, thing. Yeah. But also, I mean, we're quite
1: good these days for the last sort of three or four hundred years, three hundred years maybe, of putting things in index syntax. Now, when you search something on on Google, I, I think for the last couple of decades, we got really good at figuring out what are the key elements in your search 20 years ago my mum used to type into google like you know what is the capital of peru now just type peru capital and it comes up that thing isn't really intuitive and you find for hundreds of years indexes like phrases that start with the or something will appear under t or alexander destroyed the city of tyre is the 47th entry under alexander like rather than (laughs) so um One of the problems, one of the early problems for indexes, which really persists for hundreds of years, is not having a sensible idea of which things should be the ones that go in the alphabetical order.
0: Totally. And also, I think it's related to the like coming to it with a concept thing, which might have been part of what was controversial about the index, right? Yeah. yeah. You have to come to the book knowing what you want to get out of it, rather than the author telling you what you should get out of it.
1: This is really important as well, because you find parallel to the history of the index, is a history of sort of skepticism about the value of the index, because you don't have to read the book fully anymore. The great thing about an index is if you know what you're looking for, then, you know, you can find the paragraph that you want in a 400-page book. Now, for scholars for hundreds of years, that's not a good thing. They think, well, we, we've invested this mental labour in knowing the book. And some upstart has come along and acts like they know it when they've just pulled out the bit that they wanted. Yeah. So there's an idea of intellectual imposture that really runs alongside it. I think we find a counterpart. There's a chap called Nicholas Carr in the States who did a book in 2008 called Is Google Making a Stupid? Or the book was called The Shadow. based on an article called Is Google Making a Stupid? And this idea that indexes promote... Broad but shallow reading, or the idea that the internet promotes broad but shallow reading, is really an 800-year-old idea. It's the history of being able to, as long as you know what you're looking for, find it, without having to do the long, linear read, is an idea that, well, people should have to do the long, linear read. In the early 18th century, a poet called Alexander Pope has a line about indexes, and he says, index learning turns no student pale. Okay the eel of science by the tail so first of all it's, it's holding back the eel of science that wants to slip away but also students think pope should be turning pale they should be burning the candle at both ends in order to learn stuff if you find a student and they're not pale then then what have they been doing they've probably been <laughs> I don't know, going on marches and smoking pot and not cutting their hair. <laughs> whatever it was that they you know students got accused of in the early 18th century <laughs> yeah it also reminds me we spoke a bit earlier about all of the different paratext footnotes page numbers tables of contents all having their own micro histories and I think different modes of reading all have their own micro histories and it's something that gets forgotten I think often when we talk about reading we imagine a single monolithic activity which is really novel reading Mm. when you should start on page one and read through to the end that's That's ludicrous that when we read a novel, we're barely doing the same activity as when we read a tweet or a restaurant menu, or when we're doing our tax returns, now we're reading our receipts, or when we read a newspaper, all of these are really quite different activities. And each of them has their own kind of microhistory. And to assume that we should read a history book in the novelistic mode is, I think, a sort of category error. It's getting the idea of reading mixed up assuming that, that reading means only one thing. And it absolutely doesn't. It has many, many different smaller histories.
0: Yeah, Although that too reminds me of when my students will accidentally say novel for book.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's a really interesting Freudian slip, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, because that's the sort of like ur-model of the book yeah. that we're working with. Right.
1: Gosh, how do you say that? I Mine do that too, and I don't think I'd ever put that thought into words before. Yeah, sometimes you're talking about a play or a poem and they call it the novel.
0: (laughs) On that note, thinking about how the world has changed and how there are these different modes of reading that change with the world around us, let me ask you our final question. Yeah. How will the index save the world?
1: Gosh, well, that's an interesting question. I sort of feel two things about the future of the index. For the long history of the index, I've really been talking about humans doing indexing. Since the early 13th century, a man called Robert test in Oxford, where I am today, thinking about their reading, thinking about what's important, what are the terms that I might want to come back to, or somebody else might want to come back to. Still, when you buy a book today and it's got an index at the back, mostly that's done by an expert reader, a professional indexer who thinks, what are the things that will be important for other readers? But like most of our jobs, like taxi drivers or surgeons or, or whatever it is, it's under threat. The computers are coming for all of our jobs. And indexing software is getting better. At the moment it's not very good. And, and in my book I included two indexes, one done by an amazing human indexer called Paula Clark Bain, which is the real masterpiece. I've been really pleased, book reviews have been really generous about Paula's index. But a counterpoint to that, I wanted to show what the current state of the art for indexing software which increasingly publishers are falling back on looks like and it's pretty rubbish and and we can have a laugh which is why i included it but the sad thing is it will only get better so in a way indexes will save the world by allowing us to navigate the increasingly big data that we deal with imagine 20 years ago imagine pre-google we rely on that so many times a day Mm -hmm. at the same time it comes at a cost which is the personable charismatic subjective index.
0: Yeah, I often think about how the sort of like model of knowledge has changed as someone who has spent a very long time in the university. I feel like the model of knowledge I am schooled into is to just read a lot of books and somehow like synthesize all that information in my head and then turn it into New books, but I think that the other model of knowledge seems much more like indexable knowledge, where what you need to know is not the contents of an entire text or a full argument, but like what to search for to find the thing to make the argument you want to make, like the path rather than the whole map.
1: I suppose, rather than wanting to sound fogeyish, that the latter is is amazing mm-hmm. and transformed our life in ways that we can't even imagine. I'll be honest, as a PhD student, and before that, goodness me, I never read, you know, the number of <laughs> geography, where I just used the index to fillet it for the bit that I needed. You know, we're all guilty of that, aren't we?
0: Totally, totally. Keyword search. Control F, man. All those PDF books.
1: <laughs> Control F. Next time you use Control F, think about monks in the early 13th century. They invented <laughs> that. There's a friary just on the left bank of Paris where they broke down the Bible into its words, the first Bible concordance in the year 1230. And they put the words into alphabetical order. Then you can look up any word in the Latin Bible. That is basically 13th century control left. And the abbot at the time was a chap called Hugh of Saint Cher, C-H-E-R, a little village in the south of France. Now, when I did my book, so I gave it to Paula. She did a wonderful index and I also ran it through this software to produce the computing index. And in the index, I noticed under the C's, sure. like, you know, sure, like, do you believe in life after love? And there were loads of references to sure <laughs> And and of course, it was the computer didn't know that Hugh of St. Cher wasn't Honey and sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. On that note, let me thank you so much for coming and sharing your research on the history of the index with us. been a real pleasure. Thank you, Kimberly. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage our social media presence. Julia Irian Martins edits our transcripts, and Owen Quinn composes our theme music. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.